You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was left for dead. His need was ignored not once, but twice by those who claimed to follow God, but failed to show love to someone in need. Then one cast out by society who should have considered this man to be his enemy, loved him and bandaged up his wounds and took care of him. If this sounds familiar, it is the parable of the good Samaritan in which while Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor, touches upon one loving their enemy. He likewise calls us to love our enemies. And today we will see a man who made it his mission to not do so. And when forced to, resented God for it. This man is Jonah. And we will be in the book of Jonah today, so you can go ahead and turn to it. Now, in the book of Jonah, the first chapter, Jonah, God's prophet, is being sent to Nineveh because God was going to judge Nineveh. And he headed to another city instead. And then we see God creating a storm in which the sailors of the boat that Jonah was on are left with no other option other than to toss Jonah out of the boat. By the end of the chapter, the sailors turn to God, but Jonah is still running away from God. And a large fish, possibly a whale, doesn't really matter, is sent to swallow Jonah by God. In chapter 2, in the belly of the fish, we see Jonah thanking God for saving his life, but still not repenting for running away from God. In chapter 3, this big fish is told by God to spit Jonah out upon dry land. And the Lord tells Jonah again to go to Nineveh. This time Jonah listens and he crosses about a third of the city with a message from God. The whole city repents and God does not destroy the city. In chapter four, we see the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. The heart of Jonah in that he didn't want them to know God's mercy and the heart of God that calls out Jonah for his hatred towards his enemies. And throughout the whole book of Jonah, we see the sharp contrast between God's love and Jonah's hatred for his enemies. But in view of God's love to his enemies, we are called to love our enemies. In today's passage, we will see God's love for his enemies is best understood when we understand who we are and who he is. I believe that in this short book, God reveals his identity and our identity, both before and after encountering him. And as much as we would like to distance ourselves from a man like Jonah, today we're going to see that we can also be guilty of hating our enemies, namely those who don't believe in Jesus. So here's where we're going today. As we go through the book of Jonah, we're first going to look at God's identity. Then we're going to go to our identity. Then we're going to go back to God's identity and then back to our identity and talk about what all of that means in terms of loving our enemies. So let's turn to Jonah, the first chapter, first two verses, to see how it speaks to God's identity. Jonah 1, verses 1 to 2. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This brings us to our first point, and that is about God's identity, in that God is just. And in scripture, we see that God's justice demands that evil be punished. And here, God is likewise telling Jonah to warn the city of Nineveh because their evil has come up before him. And so he's telling them to warn, so he's telling him to warn them of impending judgment. And we see the same identity of God in that he is just in the Psalms. As the psalmist writes in Psalms 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. In Job, it says of God in Job 36, verse 6, he does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the, afflict gives the afflicted their right. In the New Testament, we see in Acts, as Ananias and Sapphira lied to God. And God's identity in that he is just is shown as he immediately executes them as they breathe their last and die. But this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira and the judgment that Jonah is to warn the Ninevites of isn't even God's ultimate form of judgment, which is an eternity away from God where those who don't know God will suffer forever without him. So judgment is the answer to our sin. And God's identity has always been just in that his perfect justice demands an answer. As the book of Jonah continues, we see another characteristic of God that speaks to God's identity. We see that God is in control. We see this when Jonah, after God tells him to warn the city of Nineveh of, from, of impending justice, outright attempts to run away from God's direction. Throughout the first chapter, we see Jonah get on a boat to head instead to the city of Tarshish. But God's identity in that his control is shown when he sends a mighty storm which leaves the sailors of the boat that he is on with no other choice other than to toss Jonah out of the boat and turn to God. So the first chapter ends with God sending a big fish to swallow Jonah. So throughout the rest of chapter one, we see God's identity in that he is in control. Even when Jonah tries all he can to run away from God's direction, God draws him back, as we will find out, to warn the city of Nineveh of God's impending justice. So what does this mean in terms of God's justice? It also means that God's identity is found in his perfect control of his judgment against those who don't against those who commit evil, and by his justice, against those who don't believe, by which he also means his wrath. As we read in Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It goes on to say that the whole world remains without excuse before God. From the Grass of the field and the sky and the oceans and all the creatures that dwell within them speak to God's existence. But all people have rejected him. So when we're talking about God's wrath, it's not just about the city of Nineveh, but the whole world who has rejected him. And 
One day the whole world will have to answer to him because his perfect justice demands an answer. And we are very much like Jonah. Even though we know the severity to which God will judge the world, we spend our lives acting like God won't judge the world. We do this when we hold on to the gospel and just sit on it, seeing no urgency whatsoever to speak hope into a world that is infected by sin and sentenced to death by a just God whose perfect justice demands an answer. After seeing all this, some of you even may be wondering, why is God angry? Why does he even have wrath? And the scriptures that we've been reading all along have been hinting at it, which leads us to our second point. Our identity without God are objects of his wrath. Because as we've hinted at before, we are sinners. And we've rebelled against God, a just God who has to respond to sin. And we see this even talked about in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 24, in the context of God judging the whole world, the prophet alludes to the cause of all this destruction by calling it a curse. It states in Isaiah 24, verse 6, Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So the curse of sin has made us objects of his wrath, just like in the story of Jonah, when even in the opening verses we see it talk about the evil of Nineveh that has come up before him. However, even though we are sinners and thereby objects of his wrath, our identity is also found in Genesis 1.27, which tells us that we are made in his image, therefore we have value in him and are loved by him. This brings us back to God's identity, in that God's identity is not just a God of justice and wrath, but also a God of mercy and compassion. We see this throughout Jonah. We see it even in the opening verses when, yes, they do talk about the wrath of God, but the passage implies God's desire to show mercy. And the two go hand in hand as Paul speaks directly to the issue of God preparing in advance what will happen, addresses the purpose behind God's wrath. In Romans 9, verses 22 to 24, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So God's purpose behind his wrath into a sinful world is to make his glory known. And just to clarify, God is not a sadist in that he enjoys the suffering of those who deny him, but that he is a just God and his justice always demands an answer. And when judgment is spared on Jonah, Jonah is thankful for God's mercy in saving him from the storm that because he was so afraid to die. As we read to the end of his prayer, in Jonah chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, it states, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. 
And we see God's mercy even throughout all of chapter three as well. As the Lord tells Jonah again to go to Nineveh and take the message that God gave him. And the people of Nineveh repent in response. The whole city from the least to the greatest turns from their sin and turns to the Lord. And we see God's response highlighted in the last verse of Jonah 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, just to clarify, this verse by no means advocates for us to work our way to earn for God's forgiveness by repenting. For both this passage and today, God relents from disaster because he looks upon his son through whom we understand his love for us as his enemies. As Romans 3 clarifies in Romans 3 verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jonah, God reveals that his very intention from the beginning wasn't to bring about wrath, but to call them to repentance. And we see this spelled out in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, where he says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And again in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is just and is in control of everything. He desires that we come to know his truth, so to have mercy on us who were his enemies. And that is also the hope that we have. And the hope that we offer a world that is sentenced to death, that there is hope and that there is life in Jesus. This brings us back to our identity in God, namely that it looks, namely what it looks like after we have acknowledged our sin and put our hope in Christ to save us from our sin. And we know that we are saved from the power of sin and death through Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus paid the penalty that stood before God. So God's justice for us who believe in him was met in his son on the cross. Now through Jesus, we have our identity in God. So an image bearer with a transformed heart. And, the, and to those who have put their faith in him, are saved from the judgment that is to come from a God who is just. And God forgives us by looking upon his son, which brings us to our last point. Now that we have our identity in God, we like Jonah are called to love our enemies, namely those who don't believe in God. In the closing chapter of Jonah, we see Jonah's response to God's love for Jonah's enemies. And we see this prophet of God absolutely furious at God's love for Jonah's enemies. He himself states his reason for running away from God clearly in Jonah 4 verses 1 to 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in steadfast love and 
relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah is so upset that God would have him warn Nineveh of impending judgment because the thought of God having mercy on his enemies infuriated him. Now, Nineveh, the city that he was sent to, was the capital of Assyria, which had quite recently in Jonah's time oppressed the nation of Israel. Jonah is so angry with God's compassion on the people of Nineveh that he would rather die than to see any of this continue to play out. So Jonah, like many of those in his time, and even after his time, hated his enemies and did not see them fit to know God's truth. And it was to a crowd with likely similar sentiments to whom Jesus corrected on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus calls us out to love our enemy because as I've said it before, it is important to know who you are and who God is. Jesus is saying that if you were God's enemy, thereby an object of his wrath, to a just God, but are now a recipient of his mercy because of his son, why do we not love our enemy? Instead, he calls us who believes in him to love our enemy, namely those who don't believe in Christ, and to pray for them. And this comes full circle to the disciples that he's talking to as they witness the persecution of their savior, their lives, and the lives of their loved ones. All the while, the one who literally died for their sins instructs them to love their enemies. And for us, there are people in our lives whom God has entrusted to us to share the gospel with. And it is the most loving thing that anyone can do that is to introduce them to the gospel. And as you've seen, it has made all the difference in the world. So let me ask you, do you pray for them, desiring that they come to know the truth about Jesus? Do you pray for that person that annoys you at work, that boss who disrespects you, the friend who you just happen to simply sit by? Do you pray for them? Do you desire for that politician or your political rival to come to know the Lord, the one who gets on your nerves, even when it seems like they do everything to make your life harder and more difficult? Or do you secretly hope you won't have to say anything or do anything? Because that is the same as hating your enemy. Because in doing so, you deny them the greatest truth of all that could literally save their soul. Now it is true that at the end of the day, Christ saves us but we are called to take the gospel forward in every part of our lives. As Paul writes to the Romans in the context of offering up our very lives to God, in Romans 12, verse nine, he instructs the church 
to let love be genuine. He then continues on and on about how that should look like in the life of someone who believes in God, whose love is called to also be genuine. He starts by listing them down all the way to the end of the chapter. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we as believers are called to let our love be genuine to all people, to, to all people including our enemies. Very often, we can be insensitive in the way that we present the gospel. I mean, think about the way that we treat our political opponents in this day and age. Very often, we can be very demeaning and slanderous in the way that we even talk about them. Is this how God is calling us to love our enemies? Now, please don't misunderstand. We are to call out evil, but to rejoice in the suffering of those who don't believe in God, who may even openly hate the church, or be living in sin is the equivalent of hating them. The superficiality of our love for our enemies can also be made known when we refuse to associate with them because their personal tastes offends our preferences. Similarly, God calls out Jonah for his lack of love for his enemies as he causes a plant to grow up over his head to protect him from the scorching heat and then sends a worm to destroy it. Again, Jonah is upset and asked to die. And here in Jonah 4, verses 9 to 11, we see the closing response of God to the prophet Jonah. And I just want y'all to really hear God's heart behind this. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God here is calling out Jonah for being more concerned over the survival of a plant with which he had nothing to do with than he is over a city full of people who don't know God and would have faced the judgment of God because of it. It is the same when we cling to our worldly comforts and prioritize them over sharing the gospel. We see this when we are so focused on getting our work done and meeting our regular obligations that we grow comfortable in them, becoming hesitant and in the end, altogether silencing the truth of God not willing to risk any relationship or attract any scrutiny simply so that our life can progress with the relative ease and comfort, all the while ignoring a city that is infected with sin and sentenced to death. Lastly, one of the ways in which we are called to love the world is to quite literally go out into the streets and do so, like Alan and Andrew did last Saturday on Seawall. I mean, the idea and the thought of going out there was nerve-wracking. But why did they inconvenience themselves to do it? Why did they even bother? 
because they felt a burden for the enemies of this city, enemies of God in this city. And unlike Jonah, they were willing to put themselves out there because a God who is just and who is in control of everything would also love his enemies, thus showing himself to be a God of compassion and mercy. God turned us who were objects of his wrath to become objects of his mercy. As a result, we are called to love our enemies, namely those who don't believe in Jesus, and love them enough to share the gospel with them. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day, for this moment in which we get to reflect on your word and to know your truth. I pray that you would etch your truth, O oh Lord, into our hearts, that we would understand it and be obedient to your commands and to your truth. And we thank you so much, O oh Lord, for what you've done for us, for how you've led us, and how you're calling us forward to share the gospel. I pray that in the days that are coming up, that we would reflect on these, on, on these words, on your words, O oh Lord, that we may see how we may love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. In your name we pray, amen.